Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm Marva Hinton. Our guest today is Daniel Jose Older. He's a writer behind the YA novel Shadow Shaper and the urban fantasy Bone Street Rumba series. His novel, Midnight Taxi Tango, is the latest in the series and was published earlier this year. You can find out how to win a free signed copy of Midnight Taxi Tango on our website, readmorepodcast.com. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Very happy to be here. Midnight Taxi Tango centers around the half-dead investigator Carlos de la Cruz's efforts to figure out some paranormal activity in Brooklyn's Von King Park. Along the way, he's helped by some very compelling characters, including a teenage girl. Now, there are some things that really stood out to me about this novel, and one of them was the strong female characters. I just fell in love with them, with Kia and Reza. How were you able to inhabit that female space mm. and make these characters so believable? Mm. Uh, thank you, first of all. I'm glad that, you know, that's something I was really thinking a lot about and I wanted to make sure I got right because um, <clears throat> it's a real challenge. Um, with Half Resurrection Blues, which is the first book in the series, you know, that was a really, that was all Carlos and it was a very male-centric book. Um, but I kept creating characters around him that really kind of took on a life of their own and wanted to expand beyond what I could actually, you know, the justice that I could do them when it was just Carlos's story. Um, so Kia is a great example of that. She was someone who I just created because I wanted someone who was going to work at the counter at the Botanica um, where Carlos frequents. And I wanted a sort of a teenager, you know, who would counteract a little bit of because Carlos is very snarky, and I wanted someone even snarkier than him to kind of clap back at him some. Um, and so she just became this very alive person in my mind, and she kind of took over the page. Um, so then it was like, well, shoot, you know, what, what, what can she do? Um, and it actually started out. Both those characters started out as short story characters. Um, I was on a train one day coming home from work, and I saw a little girl in a tutu uh, with someone who might have been her older brother, and she just loved him so much, and it was so beautiful to watch. And I was like, man, that's such a story. Um, <clears throat> and then I was like, do I have a character that that could work in that world? And then I was like, well, there's Kia, and Kia's, you know, Kia wants a story, and she, you know, I wanted to give her that history. Um, and that's where that section of Midnight Taxi Tango comes from, where she's thinking about Gio, who was her cousin who disappeared, and, you know, the story behind him disappearing and everything else. And so, you know, that really kind of came to life for me in my head. And with Reza, it was a similar thing. I, I saw somebody, um, a woman just pulled up in a, in a taxi livery cab in front of me while I was at work one day, and she had a vest and fingerless leather gloves and slicked black back salt and pepper hair, and she just looked like she'd just kill a man, like without even thinking about it, and then drive away. She literally just lit a cigarette, smoked it, and then drove off. And I was like, man, I need to write a story about her. And so <laughs> that's where that whole first sequence with Reza came from. I thought, you know, if I could get someone who's this badass, who's clearly just lived and killed, <laughs> and then I could put her in a situation where she's in danger and she's just like shooting away to save her life, you know, then I feel like I, I will have done something good with conflict uh, to make this story come alive. So. Then I feel like it's always a question when you're writing someone who's not you on a demographic level, you know, first of all, are you writer enough to do that? Um, and I think you have to always ask yourself that very seriously because sometimes the answer is simply no. And I think we need to honor the fact that some stories are not ours to tell, even if the character shows up for us. 
Um, so I really took that very seriously and I really wanted to challenge myself to do it and that included challenging <clears throat> who I was and who I am, you know, both as a writer and as a male, um, as a Latino who's not black um, and just someone who inhabits all these different spaces in the world and what does that mean? Because Carlos is very close to me demographically, Key is not. Um, so it meant like figuring out, thinking really through different ways that I, I could use the text to protect myself as someone who is all those things, which essentially would mean to lie, you know, to kind of create a fantasy world around all these issues of non-blackness and maleness and cisness and straightness um, that aren't true, but that make me feel better about myself, you know, which is not what we should be doing as authors, but what authors tend to do very often, I think, is why we see a lot of failures in representation of the quote-unquote other, is because the author's really just trying to protect themselves and make themselves look good. Um, so I know I couldn't do that, and so that came through in the text, I think, in different conversations that the characters have, and the way that they perceive and interact with Carlos on different levels, um, and in just who they are. And then finally, it's just a question of flow and voice. Like, if a voice of a character clicks, which both Kia's and Reza's did really clearly in my head, then it allows me the space to explore those different questions of power and privilege and allows me to go deep into the story in ways that I'll need to. So there's a sort of feeling, it's really a gut feeling once a character's really like alive for you and then you can proceed to write them. Well, the other thing that really stood out to me mm -hmm. in reading this book is that this novel took place in a black and brown world. Yeah. I mean, characters of color were the stars, you know, yeah. rather than the sidekicks. And there were several gay characters, also male and female. You've been praised for the diversity in your work. Mm -hmm. um, why is that so important to you? Uh, mostly just because it's true. You know what I mean? I, I, I think at, at its core, the struggle around diversity is a struggle for the truth. Um, I think taken as a whole, the publishing industry has perpetrated a very great lie um, over the course of history by excluding us from their narratives and by us I mean all the people who've been excluded from those narratives um, when you know when you look at the bookshelf and it's so white it just it just feels like a lie you know it's not it's not accurate the world is not even majority white um, and New York City certainly isn't so you know on a more microcosmic level just cities about stories about New York that are just so white just they just boggle my mind um, even if the lead is white how is it possible that you're looking at this city and not seeing everyone else um, it takes a very intentional act of you know um, aloofness I think to really write that way and so I don't think of it as writing diversely I think of it as writing honestly um, that's the New York I know that's the New York I live in that's you know my friends and family and it just seems like how could you not? Um, and then to take it to the next level, I think, you know, that includes the complexities of race in New York. That's um, as much as I consider myself a political writer, I don't think there's any writer that's not political. And certainly I think in the realm of world building is an opportunity where we can really explore different aspects of culture and power um, in the city. You know, I think that's where we, I always think of like story as melody and world building as harmony, right? Because there's a, there's layer into it that we can really get into in a different way. Um, so, you know, looking at New York, we see it as a place of change, a place of conflict and crisis and history and past. It's a crossroads like every city. So it's just your job as a novelist to tell that story on some level. You make some really interesting style choices with this novel, the way you change point of view from chapter to chapter. 
So sometimes we're in Carlos's head and sometimes we're getting the story from Kia's perspective and then sometimes it's coming from Reza. Why did you decide to tell the story this way? Part of it was what I was speaking of earlier just with Carlos, um, recognizing how limited that giving a singular perspective was so you know and I think that can work depends on the novel Half Resurrection Blues is really about that and it's about his journey and that was what Indy wanted to be Midnight Taxi Tango is a much different kind of project um, that I feel like at its heart is about grief and loss um, and how it's really almost like a triptych of how different these three different characters deal with losing someone and then how do they move forward vis-a-vis fighting evil cockroach dudes you know which is obviously the more on the surface conflict um so in order to really i think explore more deeply all those things it was really a question of letting each of those characters really just live on the page in their own head much more than it just wouldn't have been possible to do that seeing it through one character's point of view also i just think you know the bone street room was kind of an expanding an ever expanding universe um so in the third novel there's four point of view characters um one of them is actually caitlin fern who's the white girl that was part of the cockroach um, situation over there. So I just think it's it's really it was really fun to explore with that way and get that deep into the world. But also um, writing it, I kind of realized that the story by itself was going in a particular pattern. And so once that became true, I don't know if it's because of my background in songwriting, but I just got really interested in sticking to that pattern. So that's why it comes in cycles, right? So it'll be Carlos chapter, Kia chapter, Carlos chapter, Kia chapter, Reza chapter, Carlos Kia Reza and then that closes out the cycle and then it starts all over again and part of that was just working in Scrivener you know that app has a really great way to just see everything so I could see each chapter and the pattern was very obvious to me and I don't think it's something that the reader necessarily realizes as they're reading it but there is a rhythm that develops and then it's a little bit of a pattern break and then it kind of comes back and I like that just I like that 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 made it really interesting it was kind of the same way when you're writing a song you know you have a rhyming scheme that you have to work with and that kind of um you know, to some extent dictates where the song goes, it then became a really interesting challenge for me to be like, okay, well, I've come to this end of this Carlos chapter, and I have a set pattern, so I know that the next chapter has to be Kia, so how, what's the story going to do now to accommodate that, and how is that going to accommodate the story, too? Because in the end, that all goes to hell, and it, you know, during the climax, when things get, go, start moving really fast, it jumps a lot faster between them, and the pattern is even ruptured, um, which also follows kind of a song... Um, perspective in a way, even though it's really about, uh, you know, tango is like sort of a thematic um, undertone throughout the whole book, but uh, I do think it, it kind of follows a bolero structure in the sense that it's like there's a verse and then it kind of lands on this um, other note and then there's a verse and it lands on a familiar note and then there's like a what we call montuno, where everything is just kind of chaos for a minute and everyone's taking solos and characters are going off in different directions and it just becomes very erratic. Um, that was in my head when I was writing it. Is that always in your head when you're writing? I mean, are you hearing music? Is it like writing music for you all the time? Uh, yeah, I think it's very similar. Um, it's not always in that structural sense. Uh, sometimes it's just in flow. I think Kia in particular is a character that has a very serious relationship to flow and just rhythm. Um, and that was sort of more her, I feel, than me. Like, I wasn't actually trying to do that when I wrote her, but I would look back and be like, oh, man, she's rhyming. I'm not even trying to rhyme her. Um, but she, she's rhyming. Whereas someone like Reza, um, who is very rhythmic, but in a very different way, and you know, just her voice is much, I think, more reserved and kind of very noirish, you know, on a lot of levels, uh, more like a blues, I think. Um, 
so yeah I just enjoy you know and I feel like there is always kind of music playing in my head even though there's I'll be listening to music but I think more importantly even there's music that I'll play while I'm plotting and figuring stuff out more than even the writing of it Um, and that's always really fascinating for Reza for some reason I don't think she as a character cares about grunge music from the 90s but for whatever reason there's a song Spoon Man by Soundgarden and whenever I listen to it I would start to sort of see Reza scenes really clearly Um, so it's more like that was like her soundtrack like if there was a movie that would be playing while she kills people Um, and so you know just finding those little nuances just kind of made the characters come to life well, you mentioned this already um, about the roaches in this novel. I mean, there's just some crazy imagery. I mean, yeah. there's some pictures that, as a reader, you get in your head that are <laughs> pretty disturbing, you yeah. know. Um, and also, of course, there's a lot of violence. You mentioned that, you know, there's killings. And a lot of the people in the book uh, use knives when they're doing this yeah. and instead of guns. Why did you make that the weapon of choice? Because, you know, we see so much with right. guns all the time. True. Um, it wasn't totally conscious, although there is a, some of aspect of that that, I, that relates back to tango for me. Tango's, as far as I know, it's one of the only song styles that is thematically tied in with the knife, with the dagger. Um, in the sense of, the, like, dagger fights are a very common occurrence in tangos. Um, which I don't think people really realize because we have the image of it that it's like very proper and you know but tango is a vernacular music style it's from the streets Um, it also has a whole um, African roots that uh, people don't really comment on or know about a lot which I think is important Um, but yeah so you know there's a lot of songs that are just murder ballads in the tango tradition which I thought was really cool and that's part of it Um, I thought that was interesting. I wanted that to happen in the book to some extent. And it's also, to me, it's a little bit about the contrast between Carlos and Reza, right? Because Carlos is really a sword fighter. You know, he has the cane blade, that that's his one way of doing things. And when Reza passes him a gun, he's very uncomfortable with it, you know. But she's a, she's a killer with the gun. That's her, that's her mechanism. So that's her go-to. Um, and that contrast was important because you have, these are two killers. They're assassins, both of them, in very different ways. You know, one in the spirit world and one in the physical world, and they have very different approaches, and they're both really dapper. Um, and I think if I hadn't been careful, they could have really merged, even though they're different genders and they're different. Um, their voices could have merged in a lot of ways. But so I really wanted to draw a sharp contrast. So, you know, this is this is Reza with her tools and her whole toolkit, and she's very she has a very sort of precise. Uh, elegant way of doing things and Carlos is kind of a rambling disaster um, and he's not quite as precise you know he'll just chuck that blade when he thinks that's the last whatever he needs to do you know he kind of goes out of desperation a lot he's kind of the hot killer and she's kind of the cool killer and um, I was just interested in that contrast and then there's this really important moment I think in the book where Carlos passes on the, the, the ghost killing dagger to Kia as a kind of way of including her in his world now that she sees spirits too and of course she's like do you want me to get shot by the cops like i'm a black girl in brooklyn are you kidding me and he has to then kind of think through his own stuff um which i really wanted to have in there just have a moment for both carlos and the reader to be able to have a conversation about privilege on some level and what that might mean you know for carlos who's not white but also doesn't face the same world that kia does um so yeah i think that that pretty much covers it well, this is the second novel mm-hmm. in the Bone Street Rumba series. Mm-hmm. Did you always set out to write a series? And do you already know how it's going to end? I, the first thing I ever wrote 
in the Bones and Rumors series was a short story that became the first two chapters of Half Resurrection Blues. But I put that aside, and then I went ahead and wrote a bunch of other short stories, which then became Salsa Nocturna. Um, but chronologically, Salsa Nocturna happens now in the series, uh, which is why I'm going to re-release it now, actually. Um, but it was the first book that I put out mm-hmm. with um, cross genres. So it started as a short story collection. Um, and I sort of in my head thought each of those stories could maybe turn into its own novel. Um, but that's not really what happened at all. What happened was I put aside that, those first two chapters of Half Resurrection Blues, which at the time were called Death on the Fine Line. Um, and then I did Salsa Nocturna and sort of put it over here. And then I went back and picked up Death on the Fine Line, expanded it into Half Resurrection Blues. And then I was like, what's, what's going to happen next? It was a really kind of weird moment when I finished that. I sold it to Penguin with a three-book deal. So I knew I had three books to write, but I had no idea how it all fit together because Salsa Nocturna was sort of hovering in the future somewhere, but I didn't know where, you know, was it going to be right after? Was it going to be at the end? I had no idea. Um, and then um, I think I just started sort of thinking through it. None of them really jumped out at me now, at that point rather, as things that wanted to be turned into longer stories, even though they could be, you know, they all have speak to kind of larger possibilities. Um, but I then uh, what happened was the, those couple short stories later on with Kia and Reza, and that turned into really what I wanted to develop and move towards um, much more so. So that's what that's where Midnight Taxi Tango came from. And then Midnight Taxi Tango ends on the day that Salsa Nocturna begins, um, very specifically. And then Salsa Nocturna kind of moves through that whole summertime and then leaves off and Battle Hill Bolero is the third and final book in the series. It comes out in January and it, yeah, I didn't know when I started it that it would be the final book. I sort of thought this was going to be like one, one of the, like the, um, you know, just one of those series that kind of goes on and on because it's very expanded in my mind and I think it could and maybe it will someday, but this cycle of it is over. Like it is a very clear and I figured that out as I was writing it. I realized how many things were coming to a head that I'd been building since those first two chapters of Half Resurrection Blues, um, which was cool because I didn't, I like not knowing and I like finding out as I go. So it was exciting to be in the middle of Battle Hobolero and coming to the end of it and being like, oh wow, I'm closing a lot of doors that I opened like, you know, years, like three or four years ago. And it's exciting to like really be able to close them in a thorough way and feel like this is a this is like a stopping point. This is a full stop rather than like, oh, because, you know, people mad at me about the end of both Midnight Taxi Tango and Half Resurrection Blues because they end like on a on a dissonant note in a lot of ways, you know, and not mad, mad, you know, just like, ah, I need to know what happens next. You know, the good kind of mad. Um, but that's not true of Battle Hobolito. Battle Hobolito is a it lands on the one. Well, the rights have been optioned mm-hmm. for this series. Mm-hmm. Are you already picturing in your head, like, you know, who might portray Carlos and who might be Kia? Or do you just kind of let that go and just wait and see? For the most part, I let it go. You know, I mean, it's easy to get lost in that conversation, but um, I really try to focus on the project that's in front of me as much as I can. Um, Anika Noni Rose, I just trust her vision so much, too. And I think that wouldn't be the I wouldn't be able to let it go so easily if it was almost anyone else. But she knows what she's doing. Um, you know, she has a really keen eye for just literature and complexity and culture. So I'm just kind of I just feel like I get to sit back and see whatever happens. So that's great. We were talking a little bit about writing, you know, mm-hmm. before we started recording, and you and I actually went to the same MFA program at Antioch, but at a different time. Yeah, and 
when I found out that you had gone there, I was a little bit surprised just because I remember from my time there, like this type of writing wasn't really celebrated. I mean, I don't right. know how else to say it. You know, it wasn't. Yeah. And I was wondering, you know, why you decided to pursue an MFA and also how was your work received when you were there? Yeah, no, that's true. I think that's that's uh, it's it's changing. I would say from what I've witnessed um, and just talking to other people in MFA programs. Um, next year, I'm going to start teaching at the Mile High MFA program, and they're very genre friendly. Um, I actually went to Antioch. I, I landed at Antioch because Tanana Rivdu teaches there, and she's amazing. Definitely one of my heroes. And so I was like, well, they must be somewhat genre friendly if she's there. Um, but when I went the first semester, she wasn't there. She was on leave. And I was like, oh boy. And then, it is a great place, but they did like have a thing where all the professors stood up and were like, okay, this is what we do. And yeah, and by the way, like if you write about ghosts or goblins, like we're not interested in your stuff. And I was like, great, you know, this is wonderful. Um, but she came and then this other guy, Gary Phillips, who does noir came and they, they really were um, responsive to that critique. Like they opened it up a lot. And, Cause a lot of students want to write that stuff and value it as literature you know, instead of just having this whack hierarchy that people make up in certain MFA programs. So I think the, the what mattered is that they were flexible. You know, I found really cool people to work with and Tanana Reeve came back, which was great. And so, you know, I learned a lot. Ultimately, I did the MFA mostly as a, to have that kind of, um, to, to facilitate teaching. Um, I mean, I learned a lot, especially from Tanana Reeve, because she's amazing. Um, but I knew that I was, at the time I was working on the ambulance as a paramedic, and I knew I wanted to teach at some point and get off the ambulance. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of that strategy in place. So you're in town to work with students in the Voices of Our Nation Arts Foundation, or VONA, mm -hmm. uh, workshop for emerging writers of color. Why is this type of work so important to you to you know, mentor students like that? Well, it really does matter. These are conversations that, you know, MFA programs aren't having um, in any kind of productive way because they're so predominantly white and predominantly run by white folks. Um, and they're simply not equipped to have them. And they should be. That's not an excuse. You know, they need to be able to have them because writers of color um, face an entirely different set of challenges in the publishing industry because the publishing industry is so white um, that need to be spoken of and dealt with and strategized around you know just like i always think about just like the process of decision making something is it's not simple but it's just um the, the questions that come up through the through the lifeline of being a writer of color like there's just no map for any of these situations that we end up in whether it's you know book covers or editorial decisions or publicity marketing like any number and every aspect of making a book which, by the way, takes a village, um, is an open door for some crazy, terrible shit to happen around race and someone to misunderstand it or, you know, get it intentionally wrong or whatever. Any number of things that then you have to deal with considering both your career and your sanity and your well-being and the book itself and a number of other factors that there's just no um, place where you can be like, how do I do this? You know, where do I go from here? The place is community, and Vona is a community, you know, and I think that's as great as all the teachers are and the learning that happens, like, you know, what really probably matters the most about it is that you've, you're in a place surrounded by really badass, really on-point writers of color who either have or will 
face some of those same questions and that they will have your back, you know, on different levels. I mean, I always remember Juno when I was here as a student, Juno Diaz saying, you know, it's anything, anytime you enter into a room of other writers, your mandate should be to create a community there, not to look for a fan club. And that's so it, you know, like fan clubs are not going to have your back. They will love your stuff and tell you great things about yourself. Many of them lies, uh, but they won't call you out on your shit or like, you know, check you when you're off or have your back when you really need help in that true sense. And that's what, you know, this place is about. And that's what I felt coming here as a student. And that's, you know, so that's always become a part of my mandate as a writer, both because of this place, because of Tanana Rivdu, um, who also teaches here, which is great. Um, when I was really first coming up, uh, Cherie Renee Thomas was there, like this, you know, magical angel out of nowhere. I took a class at a place called the Frederick Douglass Creative Arts Center back when it existed. So, and she taught that. That's what she really midwifed um, the Monster Rumba New Existence because that's where I started writing all the short stories that made up the foundation of Salsa Nocturna. And she saw what I was doing right away and cultivated my voice and, you know, let me know that there was a, there was a power to what I was doing and there was a necessity to it. So when I was getting rejected over and over and over by agents and editors, you know, I had that sort of flashpoint to remind myself that this is important. And Shadow Shaper was rejected 40 times, you know, by agents and went on to become a New York Times bestseller. So, you know, there, there were so many opportunities for me to be like, you know what, forget it. But because of um, writers of color, particularly black women, um, you know, I'm here today. Well, you mentioned covers. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes writers of color have to fight for a cover that represents their novel and the people who are in it and one thing that really stood out to me about Midnight Taxi Tango is that there is a you know black woman on the cover and she's not ambiguously you know you don't have to what is she you know she's clearly she is a black woman she has a huge afro and she has you know this blade and she's looking really strong on the cover Mm -hmm. did you ever have any trouble with that like you have you know Shadow Shaper as Mm -hmm. well features another black woman Mm -hmm. on the cover did you have trouble you know getting it that way was it ever discussion or you know maybe let's go with something else because there seems to be a fear that if people see right. a person of color on the cover right. that they will right. not pick it up right no I mean the, I know the publishers that I work with they really want to get it right they haven't always got it right on the first time but they've always been very receptive to my feedback and that's really what matters you know what I mean uh, as much as I would love to not even have to give feedback and on the most recent cover I, they got it they just nailed it perfectly 100% number one on Battle Hill Palato where it's another very unambiguously black woman um, Sasha on the cover with natural hair and um, you know that matters and and it also matters that they really learned from the experience of going back and forth a couple of times to get Midnight Taxi Tango right um, but it, it's exactly what you said and I and I make a point of putting it in the text so that there can be no misunderstanding. You know, Kia says, I am unambiguously black in the book. Like she, she says it. And she says it in part because that's who she is and that she would say it. Uh, and she needs to make that very clear. And in part because it's true that there is a tendency when it's a person of color to either completely delete them from the image so it's like a teacup or something randomly or put them in a silhouette or finally, all right, you're going to show their face, at least make them ambiguous, you know. Just trash. Um, and I think it's just really important to even get into those deeper hierarchies. And I think, like, I don't think most of the white people in publishing are really tuned into the fact that those differences really do matter quite a lot. Um, they might be. I don't really know. I don't care. You know, what I care is do they listen to me when I when I have feedback for them? And they do, and that's what matters. And 
And not for nothing, I haven't always had contractual power in these situations. So it really is them being like, let's really work to get this right. Um, and then doing it right. And that's, you know, that, again, that's where I come in. I just think it's important to, to stand up, uh, do whatever I can from the writer point of view to really be clear about who's going to be shown. Um, you know, these are questions of privilege. Like for Sierra, it was clear too. Like I, I needed to make sure that there wasn't ambiguity around her hair, for instance. You know, so that's that's also part. Besides the fact that it really is part of the story, like her struggles with her own family's anti-blackness and and colorism. And, you know, it was also important to, for her to stake out that space as uh, outside of the ambiguity. And that's not a comfortable space, you know, for everybody. And it certainly seems to make white folks uncomfortable, like unambiguous blackness. Uh, which is why it's important that it's in books, and in part. Um, that's not all of why. It's also important because, you know, folks don't get to see that enough. Um, and it matters to the people who are reading it and feeling like, oh, here's a character that is staking out this space of being me. Um, you know, we don't see it. So I just, I just, it was important for me to, to do whatever I could. And again, most writers don't have any say over their covers at all. And I went into it expecting to have no say. Um, so it's awesome that I did. You have been really outspoken in your uh, support of diverse books and in your criticism of work that you see as not representing minorities as fully human or just ignoring people of color. Um, That's actually where I first learned about your work. I saw saw your columns and your essays. why do you feel like it's so important for you to speak out about these things? Because there are writers that remain silent, or maybe they speak out in, you know, when they're around other minorities, but they don't speak out quite as publicly as you do. Right. Um, I, I don't know the why behind it. I guess I don't think a lot about it. It just seems like the most natural thing to do. I mean, I entered, I, I did enter into writing and publishing already, kind of knowing that that would be my path. So it's not like I stumbled into it. I was like, oh, I get, oh, I'm really mad. Let me just suddenly write this thing. Like I knew that I was gonna be. I was already mad because I'm human, and I was already outspoken in my own right. And I was looking for a way to say that louder, um, because there was a period where I wasn't even trying to write books. I was just writing essays. I just didn't know what to do with them because I had no platform. And it was before Twitter, and so I was just kind of writing things that I thought about, but didn't know what to where to put them. Um, in college, you know, the, the writers I really looked up to in college were like Baldwin and Bell Hooks and um, um, Arundhati Roy and people like that who were just putting it straightforward on the page, you know, without any kind of fantastical aspects or story around it um, in the fictional sense. So when I, when I then, and I, and I organized for a while too, um, just as an organizer, not a literary organizer, just doing the work, you know, organizing marches, doing a lot of workshops, mostly workshops, and just different forms of organizing around race and gender. Um, So the analysis around power was very clear in my head because I had been organizing around power analyses um, for a couple years. So it was just very straightforward and a natural part of the process to enter into publishing, which I already knew was jacked up and racist, um, and see now, understand it in terms of gatekeeping, um, one of the first groups I organized with was called the People. It's called the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, who does anti-racist work um, in, nationally out of New Orleans, and they're amazing and they're really sharp on power. And I learned a lot about power from their analysis. And um, so yeah, like I just it was just there, and 
it was obvious and we can see it even not being in the sad the publishing industry it's very obviously on the shelf and in the narratives and in the movie theaters so um, it was to me just really a question of saying what I saw and with a platform like Twitter you know there's it's on the one hand can be bad because we learn all the terrible stupid things that the people we actually used to like you know think like the celebrities that we hoped were a little better than that on the other hand it's the first time that writers and and people in general have had an ability that to have an unfiltered conversation with the rest of the world because there's no publicist in the way there's no editor hopefully telling you what to do if they do they they know that's a losing game with me um or agents you know it's just me and the people that i follow and the people that follow me and we're talking about stuff so you've seen because of that the rise of a lot of conversations that are very uncomfortable for people in power and that's awesome you know it's a really good thing i think the net positive is very clear in that situation um and for myself you know it was just a matter of thinking through stuff that i was thinking through and saying it out loud and having a conversation about it and that's one of the great things about it. there's a call and response kind of a- aspect of something like twitter that you don't get you know at other places or if you're just kind of like you know, writing something off over here. Um, and then it was kind of a natural next step to turn those into essays and, and publish them. Um, plus, it's just a really good way to put yourself out there on another level. Um, and I think it, it's, I know it, it, you know, I think it, it, it allows people to see and in a way gives folks permission to be loud that didn't think that they could make it, quote unquote, make it, you know, in the publishing world and, and have an opinion because we're sort of taught I think there's an industry standard of like how to be an online writer that involves just that false mask of neutrality and just be like, oh, no, well, you know, I don't talk about God or sex or religion or politics or anything else, you know, which is very boring. Like, I don't I can't think of any writer that I follow that pretends to be neutral because that's just dull, you know. So I call it like I see it. And it's for my own well-being, too, because I would go nuts if I wasn't talking about what I think is uh, wrong with stuff. Okay, I'm going to just ask you quickly about your reading influences. Sure. You know, here at Read More, we always like to ask writers who were the writers who sort of started you out yeah. and, and got you, you know, thinking about becoming a writer yourself. Right. So I'd like to just ask you if you could limit that, if you could, if you were in a situation, say, where you could not read any new work you could only read things you've read in the past but you could read that as much as you want and then really you know pour over it and study it what three uh, or which three books would you choose oh god (laughs) that's just a terrible question (laughs) i um probably let's see well i always shout out um nalo hopkinson's midnight robber is one of my favorite uh books definitely um young adult Caribbean fantasy it's just really brilliant and I, I could use a reread on that anyway um damn that's too hard I, I it's a book that I return to a lot I, I don't reread books so it's especially hard because for whatever reason it's very rare that I'll reread a book I think Snow Crash is the only book I've reread in recent memory um Maybe the Iliad, that was one of my favorite books growing up, and it's another one I could stand to reread, and it probably shaped a lot of how I write, and there's a lot to sort of dive into, and I just I just love mythology a lot, I've always loved it, but I love that that was the sort of 
longer form version of the shorter stories of mythology and it kind of brought it all together um, and then I guess uh, Six Easy Pieces Walter Mosley um, that was just kind of one of the foundational texts for me as far as thinking through power and genre and just one more on your reading do you have a book that's sort of on the flip side that is maybe popular but you've just never been able to get through or it just it did not do it for you uh, The Kite Rider I hated The Kite Rider it's a terrible book I don't know why anybody liked it it was so bad I mean people I know everyone has their opinions and that's fine I just I thought it was very trashy in like the laziest possible way just like what are you doing why do you keep traumatizing the characters and the audience and the readers you know for no clear reason no literary merit just a book that spiraled like lower and lower with each new chapter <laughs> I almost threw it across the room when I finished it okay and lastly what are you reading right now um oh I just started a randomly a book about I don't remember the title but about um I'll tell you Revolutionary War Spies something like that because uh, I'm, I'm not a history buff but I love history and I love sort of the stories of history mm -hmm. and the war stories and I'm a big fan of the um Civil War novels that Jeffrey Shower I think wrote. This is called uh, George Washington's Secret Six by Brian Kilmeade. I don't even know if it's good. And Don Yeager. I don't know if I like it yet. I just enjoy kind of random bits of history and kind of strange chapters of history with cool information. And I love war stories for some reason. Um, so yeah, I love the Jeffrey Shower books about the Civil War and. Um, every once in a while I just kind of will pick up something random like that. I think it feeds fiction really well. Um, for sure. Yeah. Okay, well, Daniel Jose Older, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really been a pleasure to sit and talk to you about books. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Please go to our website, readmorepodcast.com, to find out how you can win a free signed copy of Midnight Taxi Tango. You can also follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton, reminding you to read more.